and welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Today I have two guests, Amri Dar uh, from the University of Washington and uh, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and Christian Davidson from uh, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank, thanks for having thanks. me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having for me. For us, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, it's a funny thing. Uh, this is the second podcast in a row that I have with the guests from Seattle, and I guess third podcast in total. So there must be uh, many good and interesting yeah, people heard, there. I heard the last one. Yeah, you had one with Amy Voice. Amy Voice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that was interesting, yeah. And so you guys wrote a paper, co-authored a paper titled Predicting B-Cell Receptor Substitution Profiles um, Using Public Repertoire Data. And you wrote a software that's called SPURF to do the inference of uh, B-Cell Receptor. Uh, substitution profiles. Uh, but let's start with you. Tell us what do you do now, how you got there. Um, Christian, maybe let's start with you. Mm -hmm. I, um, I'm currently uh, sitting as a programmer slash analyst um, in the Masson Group at Fred Hutch uh, Cancer Research Center. And um, my story about, like, so I am Danish um, and I am from Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, and that's where I uh, did my undergrad and and uh, throughout undergrad I I was uh, visiting some different countries and I, I got you know uh, excited about going going to the U.S. and at uh, at some point uh, halfway through my masters I found out that I wanted to make a project about uh, B cells and and B cell receptor evolution and so as it turned out uh, I ended up um, in Seattle. Um, with Eric Madsen because he was doing work that I found interesting and, and we had some similar interests. So, so I, I ended up contacting him and, and we got to know each other and, and I went to Seattle and I stayed there since. So I've now been in Seattle for, for one and a half year and, and, um, and, uh, I will be starting, uh, my PhD, um, this, this summer. And so in, in that one and a half year, I've been working on a, a handful of different projects, um, and one of them with, with Amrit, uh, who's now the co-author of this paper together with me. And, and, um, yeah, it's been, been great fun. Cool. Uh, Amrit, what about you? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm originally from, uh, California. And, uh, so I did my undergrad in California and, uh, you know, just very apply, you know, I was interested in just pure statistics and, you know, a little bit of mathematics here and there. Um, I, I had no interest in biology at all. You know, I thought it was very just, you know, memorization of terms and very just, you know, not, not a real logical field at all. Um, and when I came to do my PhD here, I got, I was, I got really into phylogenetics, um, which is the study of kind of evolutionary relationships among different species, different just sequences. Uh, and, uh, somehow, you know, and then they, you know, a little here, you know, here and there, I somehow got to work with, got to be part of Eric Madsen's lab and kind of focused kind of phylogenetic inference, uh, inference problems with respect to B cells. So, uh, you know, I'm certainly not, uh, you know, the, I didn't study, uh, kind of B cell, kind of B cell dynamics from a biology perspective, but I'm certainly picking, picking up, uh, all the information as I go. That makes sense. So we'll be talking a lot about 
uh, B cells and B cell receptors and clonal families. And I don't want to assume that all the people who are listening to this know all that stuff. And certainly my knowledge is limited. So can you give a uh, brief introduction to to this concept? Yeah, um, I think that responsibility falls on me. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's many... Many terms. This is immunology, and there is, uh, you know, there is just so many uh, terms and abbreviations, and uh, it can be extremely hard for I think even a trained immunologist to to follow them. But there's some basic concepts for P cells, and so so P cells are like an elementary part of the uh, adaptive immune system, uh, and so you could you could sort of divide the, the adaptive immune system into two parts. There's the, the B-cell compartment and there's the, the T-cell compartment. And, and these are the, the two compartments that can dynamically adapt. And those are the compartments that you can, you can activate to elicit a vaccine response uh, so you can get pr- uh, protective immunity. And, and it's also what will fight off in infections and, uh, and all sorts of other uh, Good things, uh, but but P cells um, are one compartment, and that's that's what we are. Uh, and I should say that they are really uh, intertwined, so they're they're connected in many ways. So you you can't really segregate them out like that. But um, but that's a simplistic view of looking at it. So so P cells are the cells that create what is commonly known as antibodies, and I, f- I think most people have some idea about what antibodies are and, and what they do. Um, and antibodies, just to recapitulate that, is small uh, proteins, small Y-shaped protein molecules that can bind and, and then neutralize pathogens. And so that might be viruses, that might be uh, bacteria, it might be uh, proteins that, that can be toxic, something like that. Um, but the point is that they can bind to all sorts of, of things, uh, all sorts of, of biological uh, surfaces. So that might be proteins, it might be glycans, it might be yeah, pretty much anything. Um, and so you you might then ask how how is the? I mean that's one of the fundamental questions in immuno- in immunology uh, when it started out that um, people were doing these experiments where they they took a a, a mouse uh, and um, and then they basically injected some some kind of uh, of pathogen into the mouse and then they could they then they could observe that they got very sick uh, first time they they got this injection and and the second time they were re-exposed then they were not getting very sick so of course they, they could see that the, the 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 mouse had adapted to something and as it turns out. Um, one of those responses is the B cells. So they're actually uh, undergoing a small, like microscale evolution um, to to bind and neutralize whatever you get uh, injected into into uh, <laughs> your body. Um, and in in like the at the cell level, what happens is that the B cells. Are getting produced continuously. There is a there is a lot of B cells that are produced in the bone marrow all the time, and those B cells are what 
is referred to as naive B cells. And these naive B cells have a, a receptor, that's the, the B cell receptor. And the B cell receptor is the surface bound form of, of the antibody. <clears throat> so now, um, all these B cells that have different receptors, they have like, um, a DNA uh, recombination mechanism that makes them extremely diverse so that they, whenever there is, there is a new recombination, then you can be fairly certain that it's a, it's an, um, it's a, it's a recombination which has, has not been observed before. So there's a continuous, um, creation of, of new and, and diverse B cell receptors. Um, so that's like a pool of, of, uh, receptors that, that can potentially bind something, that they, they can all potentially bind the, those pathogens. But just because you have one or two cells that bind something, that doesn't make up for an effective immune system, because those two cells won't really be able to do very much. Right, so, so you need, so you need one thing at least. You need expansion of those cells that, that uh, react to, towards the immunogen. Uh, and as it turns out, you you also uh, need something else. You need something that makes them bind better, uh, because these naive receptors that that are supposed to bind and recognize uh, pathogens, they might bind very weakly, and that's just that's simply not enough to to um, to have a, an effective neutralization of the pathogen. So so this is where <laughs> so. I, Long behold, now, now we come to now we come to to to, um, to the process which which we have uh, have studied intensively in, in the Madsen group, which is affinity maturation. So this is the concept uh, where you um, you have uh, a, you have some protein that, which is um, immunogenic. So this is foreign protein. You have an immune response which is elicited against. This so it all starts out with uh, one or a handful of, of B cells, naive B cells. They do, they recognize the uh, antigen, but they recognize it uh, quite weakly. And then because they recognize it, um, and because they're naive sequence uh, naive B cells, then they can undergo a process called affinity maturation, uh, and that that is a process that happens in the lymph nodes and. And there's some nodule-like structures that are that are formed called germinal centers, and in those germinal centers, there is a, a selection process and there's a proliferation mutation process, and and it's divided into two zones. It's called a light zone and a dark zone, and and in the light zone there is a selection for for high uh, or good uh, antigen binders, so B cells that have mutated to produce a better uh, receptor. And in the, in the dark zone, um, of this germinal center, there is a, a different process, uh, which is, uh, cell division, uh, vast cell, uh, differentiation, oh, it's not differentiation, sorry, division. And, and, uh, and then there's a mutation process, which is special for finished maturation, uh, and that, that, that's called somatic hypermutation. And, and the reason for that is that this receptor is not very long and, if you if you are to make an efficient uh, and fast evolutionary process, uh, 
you you gotta introduce some some mutations and just a, like the normal baseline somatic uh, mutation rate is so low that you'd basically never get anywhere. So there's a special process for uh, for boosting this uh, mutation rate to around a million fold of of the normal somatic mutation rate. Okay, so that's that's the, like the basis for affinity maturation. You have selection and you and you have um, uh, proliferation and and um, and mutations. And after some time, we're talking like three, four weeks or so, you actually have uh, accumulated a good number of, of mutations in these receptors. Around five to ten percent um, of of the nucleotides will will, will have a mutation, um, and um, and usually you observe that the affinity, so so the strength with uh, with which the the B cell receptor is binding the antigen is around a thousand fold higher, maybe even ten thousand fold higher. So there's like a substantial uh, improvement in in these receptors. Um, and yeah, uh, in this process, there there is like quite a vast number of cells. Uh, we're talking like 10,000 cells that are inside this, this germinal center. And it's, it's actually that process, uh, that microevolutionary, microevolutionary process that has been the center of attention for many projects in the Madsen group, including this project. So if you boil away all the fat, uh, from, from what I've just said, we, ju- we are actually just trying to make, um, predictions of uh, the substitution process, the underlying substitution process of, of this affinity maturation. So I hope that that, that, that makes somewhat sense. <laughs> this makes sense, yeah. And, and, and also specifically, um, so you're not looking at the uh, mutation process for a specific antigen, right? But uh, you are interested in, in, in the question of like, which nucleotides and which amino acids we can mutate at all, right? Which which ones does it make sense to mutate? Absolutely. Uh, so, well, I, I would say first of all, there's there's a massive problem in within the community of of like analyzing uh, B cell receptor sequences that we hardly know what they bind. Uh, so that's a reoccurring problem again and again that um, we can sequence a lot of these because these can be sequenced with with some so with some tricks and, and some uh, some hacks on Illumina sequencing, we, we can sequence the full length receptor sequence uh, for the B cell receptor, and and that's all good. We can then make millions of of, of reads and, and we can we can generate hundreds of thousands of of uh, B cell receptor sequences from like one individual or maybe from even like hundreds if if that's what we want. But at the end of the day, we don't know what what these receptors are binding, <laughs> and and so it's it's very difficult to to say something about like this specific process between the antibody and the antigen. Mm-hmm. What we can say or what we can do is that we can we can take these the sequences that we that we get from sequencing, and then we can start clustering them uh, in such a way that we. We attempt to recapitulate the relationship between uh, sequences that were also 
well, sequences that were also related biologically because they, they all came from one recent common ancestor. We, we can try to, to recreate that by clustering them uh, in, a, in a clever way. Okay, so now I think we have enough background to, to formulate the problem precisely, the problem you're tackling, and I sort of alluded to it, but can you put it just concisely so that we have, uh, you know, we, we know what we are striving for? Yeah, um, so there, there's a few concepts juggling around, and, and so there's affinity maturation, there's germinal centers, and, and then there's something that we, we got to introduce first, which is clonal families. <clears throat> and, and I think, I think the whole problem here boils down to the fact that, uh, that one germinal center can potentially host many, uh, naive cells. So back in, in the old days, we were thinking about germinal centers as, as, uh, like one, uh, well, it was founded by just a single B cell. So that made, made everything very easy because then all the cells that were in this germinal center, they were all from the same rearrangement event. They were all from the same common ancestor, like this naive, single naive B cell. That turned out not to be true at all. It turns out that there's actually like a few 50, maybe a hundred, 150 naive B cells that are seeding these germinal centers. Uh, However, as it turns out, they usually actually resolve because there's heavy competition and, and then one of those clones will win. And then we're close to the starting situation. But it's just to say that it's, it's a complicated process. The way that we can make it more simple is that, that we can introduce a concept of a clonal family. And, and the, the clonal family here is just defined as all the sequences that are related to the same, so all the the affinity matured sequences that have uh, harbored lots of mutations that are all um, uh, descendants of um, a common uh, ancestor, a common naive uh, B cell. So, so with that uh, concept introduced, what we attempt uh, attempted to uh, to make was an inference algorithm that could um, that could infer uh, the substitution profile of such a clonal family. Yeah, and substitution profile being Oh yeah, so that's a detail as well that that um because because we're basically we're interested in in we're interested in the selection process which is in the germinal center. So, we are inter interested in affinity maturation. Uh that makes nucleotide substitutions irrelevant. At least if we make the assumption that, that all codons are equally good, then, then, um, Sonana's mutations are, they, they don't have any selective advantage. So, and that's, that's the assumption that, that, that we're making. And therefore, uh, all of these, uh, when we're talking about substitutions, we are talking about substitutions in amino acid space. Yeah, and, and so the profile itself is a set, like for every amino acid, right? It's a set of probabilities of in this clonal family, uh, how often do we see the substitution of this naive amino acid into another amino acid? Yeah, correct. Um, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a position wise substitution profile. So it's, it's not just a substitution matrix where, where you can look up all the, the different, like going from one amino acid to the other, but it's 
it's a like proposition uh, propensity or whatever you want to call it. It's yeah, it's proposition. So we were able to because these receptors are fairly conserved. We are able to align them to to the same alignment. Uh, so they can all be aligned in the same coordinate system, uh, and therefore it makes it quite easy to to map substitutions back to a single position. And therefore we we can create these profiles uh, for position number thirteen. There will be this percentage of uh, alanine and this percentage of uh, glycine, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah, and so. Before we go into the details of how you managed to do that, convince us that this is a, an interesting and important problem to work on. Like, and and I guess I'm also interested in uh, how you arrived at that problem. What motivated you in the first place? Yeah. Um, so the motivation was that um, when so we observed that when we do sequencing. Um, of like B cell receptors uh, via like a blood sample, say a blood sample, then uh, the clonal family size, so the number of sequences that, that we can map back to a single clonal family, that distrib- that size distribution is is following a power law, and what that basically means is that that the majority of the clonal families will only have one uh, or two observations. Actually, the majority will just have a single observation. So, um, if you want to, to, um, or if, if you happen to isolate a, uh, a sequence that, that you are interested in because it binds something, uh, relevant and, and it comes from a clone family that only has a single sequence, well, then it's not very easy to make informed, uh, choices about substitutions. And so, from an engineering point of uh, point of view, that makes that makes it interesting. Why is it important to know about this substitution? So, presumably, in the selection process, the sequence that won this competition, right? This is the best sequence. So, why do you want to find out about all the other sequences that lost? Uh, because it's, it's probably not. Uh, so, I, I would I think that. We, we we can't necessarily say that 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 it's it's a winner takes all game uh, in these uh, maturation processes. There is a lot of flexibility in these receptors. So so some positions, it just it won't matter if you have uh, threonine or serine on that position. It, it simply won't matter for the fitness. So um, so again, my my point of view is from the engineering point of view. Uh, I, I I think I'm. I'm being biased because I worked in a in a company that that made uh, uh, monoclonal uh, antibodies for for therapeutic uh, for therapeutic use, and and in that case, we did use uh, B cell receptor sequencing, and we did also face the problem that many of those clones just had a single sequence, and so if we were to make informed choices about uh, like engineering that receptor. We, we didn't have much information from the sequencing other than that we could isolate that single sequence. So again, like it, fo- it falls back on, on the engineering application, I think. This is actually very interesting. Could you spell out that a bit? Like how, how do you use this in the engineering problem? 
of like uh, developing antibodies. Yeah, so there's a massive interest in, in developing antibodies these days, and, and uh, I mean most people in in the field of immunology and, and especially in the field of of, of of cancer, they they know that that there's a there's a wave of PD one and PDL one and CTLA and all of these immune blockade antibodies uh, that are being tested, and and as it turns out, antibodies are just very convenient for making new therapeutics they, they you can design them to bind pretty much anything so you can you, if you have some biological process by which you you want to to uh, make an agonist or an antagonist for you might be able to do that with an antibody so that sounds simple then you just need to make an antibody and needs to bind something <laughs> but uh, as it then turns out there is all these problems downstream uh, in terms of like antibodies are prone to aggregating. So when you, you, you might be able to find an antibody that binds uh, to the right antigen target, but if you need to produce it in high, um, in, in large amounts, and if you need to make it uh, into a drug, it needs to go into to a syringe and, and it doesn't, it doesn't work out if it's a, uh, it's if if that solution is extremely viscous, so you, you can't like inject it, <laughs> and uh, and the same with like something like stability, you need to have a stable um, protein. Same with expressibility, you need to have something that can be expressed, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I mean, there's just lots of of complications when you need to make a therapeutic antibody. You you need to go through a ton of different. Uh, quality control steps and 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 it, that's just very difficult. So so the way that that you can that you can uh, work your way around some of these classical problems about antibodies aggregating and and uh, antibodies being immunogenic uh, that's another big problem is by making introducing single substitutions and you can do that sort of randomly and <laughs> just try your luck. <laughs> And, and, and do all the, the, the essays to, to see if, if you, you got it right. Or you can try to do it in an informed way. And I, I would say that this provides one informed way of introducing substitutions. Yeah. So you can look at, at these profiles at these frequencies at which the different substitutions occur. And, uh, presumably uh, the B cell receptor sequence that you get out, out of your sequencing is will probably correspond to the most uh, probable one, right? The most probable set of amino acids. But maybe you can trade that. Maybe you can settle for a bit less probable. And so maybe it's like a little bit worse, but it has some these other independent good qualities that uh, you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, that's a good observation. Of course, you would expect that if, if you're drawing from a pool of sequence that says you would, you would expect to draw the that well the most likely would be also be the the highest abundant sequence in uh, in that set but but yeah i mean as it turns out there are quite a few positions that are just i mean they're just flexible by nature uh to some substitutions uh but you you might not know those a priori so this just provides a, a way of a more principled way of of choosing such substitutions cool um so now let's talk about the uh, 
data that allows you to to make these inferences what what sort of uh, input data does your algorithm need i think we listed a couple of data sets here um six data sets right but like in in general what kind of data is that so i know you describe and and you refer to the the process or protocol called uh, RIPSeq or repertoire sequencing. Uh, could you maybe start with that? What, what is that and how does it work? Yeah. Um, yeah, so repertoire sequencing is it's a, it's a process by which you take a sample. It could be blood. It could be uh, you, you can dissect out a lymph node from, from a mouse, for instance. Or it could be all sorts of immune compartments where you can find um, B cells, and uh, and then there is a process of of isolating uh, the B cell receptor sequences, and, and so you can go about this in two ways. You can either try to isolate it on DNA level, or do the other thing that most people are doing, uh, simply uh, specific, simply amplifying the transcripts uh, specifically with with primers that are that are binding upstream and downstream of of the the variable region of this receptor. And, and then you'll get a PCR product, which is, uh, what is it? About 450, uh, maybe all the way up to 550, 550, uh, base pairs. So that doesn't fit into a single Illumina read, which is like 300 base pairs for my seek. But if you do, um, um, if you do patent, you'll actually get a small overlap between the two uh, and then you can merge them on the middle and then you'll have resolved your full your full receptor uh, receptor sequence with with like a single um patent illumina read and you can you can like to be fair you can also do this on 454 platforms and you can you might even be able to do it on iron torrent or something like that but people are moving or already have moved to more or less purely just Illumina sequences, and and then by doing that you can you can get like millions of reads for for a single sample. And so you mentioned that you can, for example, extract this lymph node out of out of a mouse. So will that be huh? applicable to to humans? How similar are the sequences between mice and humans? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Of course, you, you you can't just. I mean, you, you can't isolate the spleen of a human being and it's you, you probably also can't uh just is, isolate a lymph node uh i think you, you can probably isolate tonsils but that's that's the only f- like lymph node or lymph compartment you can isolate from a human being unless they're, they're dead um there are a few studies where they use small like needles and then they they can they can pull out stuff from the lymph nodes with those needles but most most people like 99% of these these data sets are just on whole blood right but but uh, can you use the data obtained from uh, from a mouse to enhance your uh, resolution of your algorithm can you use that as one of uh, inputs without sort of any si- any bad side effects yeah that's uh, well so for, so first of all this is all uh, human data sets. And so, so, and it's all from, uh, from, from uh, plot draws. So these are all B cells that are circulating 
in the blood. And, and so the immune uh, compartments are all connected by, they're all in like the, there's a whole lymph, lymph, lymph system with lymph nodes and, 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 um, different compartments, but they all communicate with, with the peripheral, uh, blood. So, so I mean, there, it's a good question whether you, you can have, if, if you can extrapolate, uh, from, uh, one compartment to, to all the immune compartments, if you can extrapolate from the sequences you observe in the blood compartment to everything else. But there, there, I think there is a, I think there is a common agreement that there is a spillover between the, the different compartments that if you have uh, a clone which is residing in, in, in the gut somewhere, that, that you'll also be able to find at least few sequences in, in like circulating in the blood. But but to answer is, uh, the question about like if we use mouse sequences, no, we we don't use mouse sequences because their uh, B cell receptors are slightly different than human B cell receptors. They like, structurally they look similar, but the sequences are somewhat divergent. So so we 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 don't use that data to uh, enhance anything uh, in in the human data sets. Got it. Yeah. Um, so another interesting choice that you mentioned is the choice between DNA sequencing and, and RNA sequencing. And so I was thinking about this myself. So I, I sort of see two advantages of, of RNA sequencing. Uh, so one, one advantage is that from, from what I understand, uh, in a B cell, right? So there are two haplosats that, uh, each can encode for, a for these uh, B cell receptors, but uh, only one of them is actually expressed, is active, and the other one is, is suppressed. So by sequencing RNA, you automatically get the the right one, whereas if you sequence DNA, uh, you would get both, and, and one of them is just not very good. Um, and the other, the other thing I, I thought about was that uh, by sequencing RNA, you actually get more material. Right, because there are just there's just one functional uh, molecule of DNA, but it produces a lot of RNA molecules. And uh, so, when when we uh, sequence genomes, we can rely on bulk data because all of the cells have more or less the same genome. But once we zoom into the this uh, variable genes, uh, we need to look at Presumably, the single cell resolution, right? So there's just too little material. But uh, are there any advantages of uh, of DNA sequencing? And uh, yeah, what what are the pros and cons? Yeah, I mean that's that uh, that's a couple of good observations. Um, so yeah, just to recapitulate that that of course there is there is two um, there's two chromosomes and and uh, that encode for for the B cell receptor sequence, um, and once you once we have this rearrangement event going on, there is something called allelic exclusion. So you only get expression from uh, from one of one of those uh, loci. So so oh, yeah, you're right uh, that on RNA level we we'll, we will have we will only observe, and and that this is a slight there's a there's a bit of untrue in that, but but in a general case, we'll only observe um, functional rearrangements, and so that's good. 
And we also get an amplification of our signal because there is maybe a thousand or or maybe even 10,000 uh, RNA molecules uh, in a single cell. But that's actually also a problem because <laughs> we get an amplification of our signal, but B cells, comes, uh, they come in different forms. So a naive B cell uh, has a lower mRNA expression um, as, say, a plasma cell. So a, a plasma B cell... Uh, its basic job is to spit out antibodies in the fastest rate possible. So obviously it has also a very high transcription rate of, of the B cell receptor loci. Um, and, but that, that's, and so that's a good just, thing, right? Because you're not very interested yeah, in, in the naive cells. Uh, well, sometimes we are, right? And, and sometimes we're also interested in the memory cells. So that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so memory cells uh, could be related to... So that you could have a pool of, of cells and you could have a bunch of memory cells in there uh, that are all related to a, a couple of plasma cells. So in, in the optimal case, you would, would, would really want to try to resolve that and, and you would, would prefer to have sequences for both memory cells and plasma cells. But your problem in this case will be that if, if, if doing this on, on bulk uh, messenger RNA, the, the plasma cells will make, you know, around a hundredfold more mRNA than, 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 than the memory cells. So they will dilute out the memory, uh, cell signal, uh, so to say. And, and you, and also another thing is that you, you can't use transcript count as, as a, a good proxy for, for cells, for cell count, hmm. which is another, uh, oh, that's, that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but this is still the this is still the technique that most people are using. There are few uh, few uh, few groups. Have, I'm not sure how many academic groups are doing it yet, but there's there's at least a, a company or two that that are doing this with droplets, where they can definitely get single cell resolution and and they avoid the problem of of um, um, of not being able to resolve. Um, plasma cells versus uh, memory cells. So how do you work around this issue in your own work? Do you just discard the identical transcripts? No, we just don't work with... Uh, we, we don't... We try to avoid using... Ha- having to use uh, uh, cell abundances because we, we, we don't have a good way of estimating them unless we have single-cell data. So, I mean, one, one way we can... One way we can use this data is we don't, we don't want to throw out any, any data per se. Uh, but so if we observe multiple reads with the same sequence, then we just, we just merge them. But you have to, you have to rely on uh, counts in order because you're looking at the, at the frequency profiles, right? So you, you need to know whether, um, this amino acid has, uh, a frequency of 90% either because it's a very frequent um, sort of variant or because it's just present in the cell that is like very highly expresses its RNA, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so see, um, that's that's true. So um, one way of looking at this is to to say, well, if you have a very uh, high fitness 
piece of a scepter. Then, so in within our world, we assume that all the the synonymous mutations are they don't confer any fitness advantage at all. So then we would expect to observe the same amino acid sequence, but with many many uh, synonymous uh, mutation variants. And so that is uh, the way that we can that we can make like one amino acid being preferred compared to uh, other amino acids because like the highest amino acid the highest fitness amino acid in in our uh, case would probably have a very high count but it doesn't have a high count because it has many transcript counts per se but because it has many uh, different dna sequence counts okay th- yeah that that's a good point that's another reason why it could be a very high count, right? But this does not exclude the first reason, right? That's also a possibility, or, or is it not? Uh, say, say the first reason again. So, like, uh, the, the first reason is just a high transcription rate. Even if it's stochastic, right, it, it just could be very high by chance. And, and the other reason is, as you say, synonymous substitutions. Yeah, but if, we, if, if there is a cell... So, so if there is a cell that has a very high... Uh, transcript levels, so say a, a plasma cell, then um, of course there is a chance that that we will uh, that we'll make a, uh, an error in the sequencing, but otherwise it would be collapsed down to a single cell because it all has the same transcript. Right. So that's what I meant when I say you just discard identical transcripts. So another yeah, way yeah. to say that you just merge them, right? But you you discard all but one of that uh, family of identical transcripts. That that's correct, and and so one one extra fact is that we're using we're only using sequences here that have uh, unique molecular identifiers. So that's our way of dealing with the fact that that especially for uh, RNA sequencing, you you could be worried about the problem of of having too many errors in your data, and that that would inflate the the number of sequences you observe with like observed synonymous mutations. Um, so when you decide to merge multiple transcripts, do you also look at the uh, unique molecular yeah. identifiers, right? Okay, so... Yeah, that, 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 that's how we uh, merge them, actually. Okay, so you will look at the different transcripts still as, as different sort of pieces of evidence for this frequency, right? They will all contribute. Yeah, uh, so the way that, that this is done is that it's, yeah, there's a standard sequencing protocol with unique molecular identifiers and you use that identifier to merge the transcripts um, and and then take a consensus sequence out of, out of out of those merged sequences and of course if there is one sequence which is completely off like by many substitutions then it's it's either discarded or something else is done uh, but in general what we observe is that there is a single unique molecular identifier uh, where we can map back, tens, maybe sometimes even hundreds of mRNA reads. And on average, they will have one uh, mismatch, uh, one, one mismatch per read. And by taking the consensus, we've, we think that we will have a pretty good estimate of the true um, underlying um, DNA sequence. And then, actually, we, we're making some cutoff saying that, that we, we, we don't want to include any sequences that, where we don't have enough evidence that, that, 
to to make uh, our consensusy. Okay. Um, so this is how you get your uh, training data for your model, right? You just take this uh, mm -hmm. repertoire uh, sequencing data from, uh, I guess, public sources, right? Did you just search on SRA yeah. for, for this data sets? Um, yeah, uh, we, we get it from public sources. And, and I think all of these data sets are on SRA. But we have specifically um, contacted the... Um, the authors of, of the, the articles where where they have where those datasets have been published to get the processed data uh, simply because there's so many ways of processing this B cell receptor data uh, and it all depends on which protocol you use for sequencing so that I mean we, we feel more confident that, that we, we're getting the, the, the pre-processed data from from the authors themselves. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we we do all on our side. We do all all the validation, and and sometimes we also apply extra filters. But but in general, they they know best about how to to filter down uh, the the bad sequences. And so, are you at all interested in the um, phenotypes for the sequencing data? So, whether your sequences come from a healthy patient or a patient with disease one or a patient with disease two. Um, in general, we haven't been so interested in it. We have been agnostic, uh, to, to phenotypes. Uh, we have data sets here that is after, uh, before and after influenza vaccination. We have uh, healthy individuals. We have individuals with autoimmune disease, Mastenia gravis. And, uh, we have, uh, here, Sequences from patients with West Nile virus and and some different things in here. I I think a common theme is that even though you have a disease like an autoimmune disease or if you have been ex exposed to vaccination, then the repertoire is is changing for sure. But there's still a lot of the same in the repertoire. So so, so I think we 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 can justify using data from various sources. Unless it's something like, like an extreme case where you have complete immunodepletion or something like that. Yeah, but also, uh, couldn't that introduce bias in your data? Like, depending on which antigens you you consider, depending on which antigens those antibodies are targeting, right? Presumably, the profiles would look different, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, but as as I um, as as I mentioned before, we. We're also agnostic to to antigen binding because we don't know what these are binding anyways. Uh, we just know they bind something or they were elicited and 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 mature towards some antigen. So we we try to make summary statistics here. So so we actually want to to get data from as many different antigen sources as possible. Right, right. Uh, that that makes sense that you don't care about uh, antigens, but. It just could happen so that, for example, if you and I run the same algorithm, but on different data sets, so you happen to have access uh, to, um, you know, patients with uh, influenza, and I happen to have access to patients with cancer, right? And and our profiles will be very different because those antigens generate very different antibodies, even though, like, ne neither of us cares about the specific antigen. Yeah, so 
but that, that's that's why we have a, a model that is trained on so many different kinds of data, I guess. So uh, that is to attempt to be agnostic to to antigens. Right. So so yeah, but I mean, you you you're right about that. That there could be some like bias there. Um, but I would say the more data we include from 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 the more sources as possible, then we're going to to get a better better and better summary statistics but that also means that uh these frequencies you're inferring the frequencies right and the frequencies themselves will be sensitive like even if you get all the data you can and you you have very diverse set of data um still the proportions in which those data sets are present right they will influence the the frequencies so if if you have uh condition one with one profile and condition two with the uh, second profile then if you mix them then the profile presumably will be also a mix of those two profiles and so depending on the proportion of the two cases in your data in your total data set right your profile will be exactly dependent on those uh proportions of of your input data uh i don't doesn't it doesn't seem to be dependent very much I mean, I'm really, you might be able to, to comment on this as well, but I think what we observe, observe throughout, like, playing around with this data is that uh, we have different ways of, like, of course, doing cross-validation, but we also have a complete, like, hold-out, hold-out validation set. And, and we see, like, on a summary level, over, like, s- summarizing over all the clonal families, we see quite similar statistics. So I guess that that sort of goes against the the idea that there should be a very different uh repertoire between immunized versus non-immunized or deceased versus uh non-deceased. Okay, fair enough. So and does that make sense at all to look at uh, like healthy people so presumably you would get what uh the uh, memory B cell receptors? Mhm. Mainly yeah, well, we already include healthy people, so... Okay. Yeah. Right, and so that's your training set, right? And then also, so the goal of your algorithm to take in uh, a new sequence, right? So uh, Because you're doing uh, inference for a specific clonal family, so your algorithm takes as input a single sequence from that clonal family and tries to infer the profile for that specific clonal family, right? Yeah. So that 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 is our way of like we already have data sets where we observe large large clonal families and then we, we can just pick out one sequence making like a subsample. Uh, we already know uh, the true uh, quote unquote uh, substitution profile because we have this uh, this clonal family with many sequences. Yeah, and so we can make the inference on one sequence and then go back and look in in the full clonal family to see if if we can recap- recapitulate that um, substitution profile. So once you do this uh, sequencing, right, uh, you mentioned that you don't currently do a single cell protocol, right? You, so you have all this mass of all the sequences, although with the, with the UMIs. And so then uh, you have to reconstruct the clonal families, right? And, and also presumably you have to uh, I, I don't know, uh, do you do inference on the sort of the structure of the genes, so the VD and, and J 
regions. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, tell me what, what kind of pre-processing you do before applying. And so the, uh, the spoiler is that ultimately you do this method that you is called tensor regression, right? But before <laughs> applying the tensor regression, you have to prepare your data. So walk me through the kind of preparation you're doing. Yeah, that you're right about that. Uh, we, it's this project is uh, a lot about just processing the data uh, so that it gets to the form to the format that we can actually use for for anything. And uh, but I mean, I, I would say we're quite lucky because one of the I think the flagship software of of, uh, of the Madsen Group is is um, the software that a postdoc in his is in X group has developed uh, so so Duncan has developed a software called Parius that is uh, I I think in in broad strokes it's a it's a hidden marker model that um, can annotate and and cluster sequences uh, B cell receptor sequences in a in a more like statistically principled way than than most other people are, are currently doing. And so what we can do is that after all the processing, all, after all the um, merging and, and, and getting out consensus sequences, then we will feed those sequences into parties and, and parties will start making like annotations. So infer which uh, genes were recombined and it will infer something about this recombination process. And I'll use all that in a, in a, it will use all that jointly to uh, to infer which sequences came from the same ancestor, and so that's the the whole uh, process of of going from just unrelated data to uh, to sequences that that are related uh, with clonal family structures, and also by doing that we'll get the naive sequence that we're actually also using in the inference as a as a feature. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, and how how is that data represented? Is just a set of FASTA files, one per uh, clonal family, or? Yeah. Uh, now, so the input data to parties is a FASTA file, obviously, um, and it's a FASTA file per per individual. So, so of course, you you can't have a clonal family that shares sequences between individuals because, <laughs> for for obvious reasons, those sequences could not arise from the same common ancestor. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, and so therefore, that's a, a logical breakpoint, and that has also been the breakpoint here. That whenever there is, uh, well, we we merge all the sequencing files into a single file that represents one individual, and then all those sequences are getting run for parties, and then parties is spitting out a format, uh, a CSV formatted uh, file that contains. Uh, identifiers for all the sequences that have have been inferred to be in the same family, and and then there is some information about the inference uh, on the naive sequence and on the V gene and on the mutations, and and there's just a lot of annotations embedded in that format. Okay, got it. Um, and then you also use something uh, that's called a whole numbering scheme. So so what is that, and how does that work? Yeah, so so that's going back to to what I alluded to before about antibodies being uh, quite conserved. So if you look at the three dimensional structure, uh, they're all they're all very conserved. Uh, so antibodies are made 
I would well the variable region of the antibodies are made up of of two regions. So there is the framework regions, and then there is a the complementary determining regions, the CDR regions, and and the CDRs are these loop regions that are fairly variable, and then you you can mutate them, and they're flexible, and so so those are usually also the ones that that can, that can bind uh, different uh, epitopes, so different antigens, and and then there's the frameworks, and, and the frameworks are making up that structure which is common for all for all these immunoglobulin. Uh, proteins, but long story short, because they they are conserved structurally, you you can you can make a numbering scheme so that you can number uh, you, you can take a sequence and then take a position and then map that back to a like from a one dimensional uh, sequence map that back to a three dimensional structure, and that's the idea here is that whenever we refer to uh, to a number uh, when we refer to uh, number ten, uh, then that's uh, an approximate position in three-dimensional space, and that's what's underlying this uh, AHO numbering. I, sh- I should say this is not like any; it's not exclusively the the only numbering scheme we could have used. Uh, it's it's just convenient in our application, but we could also have used another numbering scheme called Cabot or Clothier or uh, there's an IMDT numbering scheme, and so all these different numbering schemes were developed with that uh, thing in mind that you, you wanted to align a, a bunch of sequences, and and the best way to align them is to prefer the uh, position to the same place in a three-dimensional structure. And and as it turns out, this AHO numbering is just the most convenient one because um, because it it's in a, a a format where um, pretty much all sequences, unless they they look very odd, will have the same vector of of numbers, and and we like to to work with a fixed length vector when we do statistics. Yeah, so th- so there are in total like hundred forty nine of those positions, right? Positions, yeah. yeah. And so many of them are gaps, actually. So mm-hmm. they'll they'll be regarded a little bit special, but. But it's just to say that that we we input a sequence and we always like we consistently get out a, a vector of 149 positions and and that's that's very that's going to be very important if we, if we want to make some some principal statistics on it. Right. So this vector is a vector of amino acids, right? Each on for one position. Yeah. Yeah. And but like some of them could be missing. Yeah, many of them could be missing because. As as, I, as as should be clear now, antibodies are extremely variable. So some antibodies have, like in those loop regions that are that are very variable, you can have some loops that are longer than others. Uh, so there's there's some 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 space to to put in longer loop regions and shorter loop regions, and and the way to do that in in such a numbering scheme will be to to have some. Some way of introducing gaps, and there's a principal way of introducing those gaps. Right, and and these uh, positions are inferred based on uh, sequence alignment, or is there some kind of uh, 3D protein modeling going on? Yeah, it's it's going back to this three-dimensional, uh, like mapping back from from uh, uh, a sequence to a three-dimensional structure, 
So, so the way that Aho numbering scheme and like the general principle behind those numbering schemes for antibodies is that uh, that you can input any sequence, and then the when you refer to position uh, ten, then that is approximately the same position in in the three dimensional structure for all different sequences. Um, and and the way that they can do this is that they can, they can make this numbering scheme and then they can optimize uh, on like they can minimize the the observed um, difference in three dimensional distance and that that's how they do that. Got it. Um, does that take then uh, like very long time to because for for each single um, sequence you have to infer its three D structure. No, because there's an approximation for this, and that's a hidden macro model. So, uh, yeah. So when you when you have like, say, what is it? We are now around like 500, maybe 600 uh, antibody sequences uh, that where we have the solved uh, protein structure. Then you you can easily do the numbering for those because you know uh, how to map back uh, a, a position in in the sequence to a position in the three-dimensional structure. And so then once you have all those sequences aligned, then those 600 sequences aligned in a multiple sequence alignment, you can run a hidden macro or you can train a hidden macro model on, on those and, and and then you'll get something that you can use for annotation afterwards. Okay. and So, so that's actually extremely fast. <laughs> so presumably once you have this uh, annotation with Echo, uh, you can... You know where each region, so the V, D, and J regions, where they are, right? But uh, do you do you use that information at all, or do you just rely on the numbers? Yeah, we rely on the numbers, but we also know where the uh, V, G, J positions are. That's that's output from from the first annotation step, the parties annotation step. Oh right, okay, right, um, cool. And so this is then ready. To be fed into the tensor regression framework, right? So, what what is tensor regression? That's for Emrit to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, great. Um, yeah, I mean, tensor regression. I, you know, in in general, it's kind of a it's a regression when you have uh, kind of multivariate kind of like per, uh, parameter spaces, and you maybe you don't necessarily have a predictor matrix, but you have a let's say a predictor cube. Um, uh, common examples in like fMRI data when you have these voxels, three-dimensional vox, you know, cubes of voxels kind of thing, and you want to like use that as a feature. Um, and like tensor regression is like a way of kind of incorporating um, that kind of information in a principled manner. So, you know, the common way of like doing analysis or whatever is just saying, okay, I have a an image, let's say, um, and I just want, you know, I just basically take away all the, you know, I just basically collapse everything into a row and make that my feature space. Right. Um, and you know that you can do that and that's great, but there, the tensor regression kind of does it in a principled manner where it doesn't actually, um, in, in the, in the most simplistic manner, it'll be, let's collapse everything to a row, but for more, you know, uh, it's, it's within a general framework, it, it won't actually decompose the cube into a, into a row, but it'll just keep it, keep it, it'll preserve the, it, the spatial properties of, uh, of the predictor data. Um, and in our case, we kind of have that, um, 
we we don't necessarily need to take advantage of all the good features of tensor regression, but certainly our data is is multidimensional um, in the sense that you know we have you know one dimension being all the clonal families, right? Um, the other dimension being you know like so we have like you know imagine we have a matrix, right? After all this aho numbering and you know, processing of the data, like our rows are, let's say, you know, the number of clonal families, um, each row being a clonal family. Um, and let's say the columns, you know, you could, you could presume that, you know, the columns are each AHO position, one to 149, right? But of course, at, you know, in each, each of these cells, we need to have an entire vector, right? A vector for the amino acid, uh, probabilities. So, so right there, it's like, oh, well, this isn't really a matrix. This is actually a cube. Um, so we can't necessarily, you know, do regression in the kind of classical sense. Um, it's a little harder. Um, but you know, given the scientific, like for instance, you know, we wanted to make the model a site-wise model. So we had very specific constraints where we said, we want to do kind of a, you know, our regression model, we want it to be kind of a weighted average of information across sites. So can, can you explain what a site-wide uh, yeah, site yeah. model yeah. is? Yeah. So basically, you know, we have all these information sources. So, you know, uh, Christian uh, we talked a lot about the processing and kind of what we ended up, you know, getting um you know, the data that we, we, we have in our, we use is kind of, we have lots of different profiles. Um, so basically we have, you know, uh, for, you know, we have, so, so site-wise model is basically, you know, you have a particular site in an AHO alignment and you want to say, you want to, you're asking the question, um, uh, what, 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 can we make a weighted average combining different data sources at an AHO position and try and predict you know, the AHO position, um, amino acid frequencies for in, in a particular, um, input sequence. So, and you, you want to do that site by site. Um, so we get these kind of like site wise amino acid, uh, preferences. Got it. So, uh, when, when you say tensor, you essentially mean just a multi-dimensional array, something yes, like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tensor and array are, are, yeah, yeah. We're not, not in the physics sense of tensors. But definitely, yeah, it's basically an array. Yeah, but also, like, I'm I'm curious: is there at all connection to to this mathematical tensors, which are like, sure, they they are multi-dimensional array, but there is more structure to them, right? Because you can sort of change the coordinates and stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, is is there any connection, or or these are just multi-dimensional arrays? No, I mean, it, it, these are just basically multi-dimensional arrays. I think I think it was just it was important to frame it this way because we couldn't necessarily certain certain you know the arrays needed to have the dimensions otherwise it would just be kind of a flat array and it didn't make sense to be flat because there you know you couldn't compare them each element equally you know depending on what dimension they were um and, and at least in our case uh we didn't necessarily need to exploit a lot of those properties you know like special properties of tensors um because in our case we were doing something very specific which was at each site Compute a weighted average and do it for all sites. Um, so basically, like for a particular dimension in our tensor, 
you know, computers, computer and weighted average and do this across all elements of that dimension. Um, and, 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 and it, so it didn't really require much more than just keeping it in the array, all the information in the array. So at each side, you take a weighted average, and so you are looking for the weights, right? So your regression results in the set of weights, and the weights themselves are site-specific, is that correct, or are they universal? Yes. The weight, Yeah, so kind of how the weight matrix works is, yeah, you have um, a set of weights for a set of, a set of unique weights for each site, and at each site, depending on how many information sources you use, you know, kind of uh, substitution profiles you use, uh, that determines how many per site weights there are. So, for instance, if I'm using, let's say, four four sources of information, uh, substitution profile sources, and that means that at each site there will be um, four, four kind of regression weights. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So 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 each each information source gets its own weight, and then the input sequence uh, uh, gets kind of is like one minus its weight. So we want all the weights to sum to one. Yeah, right. So um, this sounds like essentially a linear regression, right? If you sort of forget about the tensor stuff, is is this just a linear regression and with the regularization? Yeah, you you could see it that way. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I I you know I like I like thinking of it as a you know a, a you know a convex optimization problem. With maybe more constraints than uh, than linear regression, uh, you know, certainly there's the regularization part, which looks familiar to people who've seen, you know, seen machine learning stuff, and you know, lasso and lars and things of that nature. Um, but you know, in our case, we have very specific constraints that all the weights need to be between zero and one, and the sum needs to be constrained to be equal to one. Uh, Right. So it, you know, it, it's it's a little hard. I mean, yes, it's you know, it's very similar to linear regression, like because it, it is a weighted, it, it is a linear combination of parameter times data, and then some, you know, like all basically summing parameter times data over and over, right? And that's how you get the site wise mm-hmm. site wise model. Um, but then you know, it, it, then you have a little more constraints because the weights have kind of unique interpretations. Uh, by having to sum to one. Okay. So uh, talk about these different data sources, because on the one hand, we may have different data sets. As you said, you contacted different people, right? got the results of different experiments from them. So presumably these are different data sources, but also in the paper, you sort of do a classification. So you have a V gene cluster, V subgroup cluster. So so what are those things and how <clears throat> how they interact with the different data sets? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, so as Christian was talking about, we had like six, five or six different, um, data sources. I six actually. Yeah. Um, and we, I mean, you know, the amazing part about it, I know you and Christian were talking about like, you know, whether, you know, whether it was good or bad to have like the data be nonspecific or specific for a particular antigen or anything. Um, and I actually think it's pretty actually remarkable that, you know, our data set's pretty broad. Like, as Christian said, it's like got a lot of different, you know, uh, antibody information from a lot of different viruses and autoimmune diseases, whatever, right? And, and the, and w- what's great is that we use this data, this kind of publicly, you know, this public repertoire data for both training and testing, 
right? So there's no, we're not touching anything else. Uh, we're purely just touching this kind of database of information, this public database of information we have. And somehow we're able to, you know, get kind of predictions that are better than what have happened before, uh, which is kind of crazy. And so, uh, so from the, so, from, so, you know, Christian said we have this public data. Um, and how we got this data set is, you know, so, you know, in particular, we wanted, you know, for, for inference, right? Like, so, you know, the, the, the goal of our project was if I have a BCR, a, a B cell receptor sequence and, you know, we don't necessarily know its clonal family, can I predict its preferences, right? It's, it's amino, uh, amino acid preferences at each site. So kind of how we recapitulated that is we, tried to take the largest clonal families in this public repertoire data set. And, and the reason we took the largest was because we wanted to have, you know, the greatest amount of information. So I think, I believe we, we, we tried to pick the largest clonal families that had more than a hundred sequences in them, mainly because we wanted to treat these as kind of a ground truth data set for uh, inference. Uh, so, you know, what we did was for each of these clonal families, um, we would subsample a single sequence from them. So the full, the full kind of, you know, so in these clonal families, you know, they have more than a hundred sequences, maybe a thousand sequences, but definitely more than a hundred. Um, and so that kind of serves as ground truth. Like we know the answer. We know what the true substitution profile looks like. We just observe the frequencies from affinity maturation and, and from sequencing. And that, that should reflect. Um, the actual amino acid preferences. Um, and then we subsample a single sequence and then we ask the question, okay, from the subsampled sequence, can we somehow recapitulate this entire clonal family amino acid composition? Um, and so we do, we do this process until we, we, until we got 500 clonal families. Um, and then we use that as our inference data set. And then all the other kind of clonal families, um, that were not chosen for inference or used as our kind of public, what I'll also call query data set. Um, it was a data set that we used basically to help with the inference. Um, and so, so let's getting back to, I know it was a long winded answer, but getting back to kind of what our data sources are, you know, we had like four main sources of information, you know, so of course you have the input sequence, which is kind of, what you feed in into the kind of the model. Right. Um, and then, you know, the four main sources of information we had were, you know, we had the naive amino acid sequence, which, um, with is, you know, it is obtained by Partis, um, as Christian mentioned before. Um, but to so fr from this yeah. input sequence, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, so mm -hmm. Partis is rerun on this input sequence later on. Yeah. Um, so the, so in particular, the, um, Partis has no other information about the clonal family beyond the input sequence. So we're not cheating in any way. But it is also, uh, like it has a trained model inside it, right? Because I, I could imagine if you give to Partis a big clonal family, it could sort of look at all the sequence and sequences and gas what the naive sequence was, right? But if you give it just a single sequence, it has to know, like in general, from some pre-trained yeah. model, what yeah, the possibilities I, I, are. I agree with you. And this is this actually came up, you know, as we were writing the paper, I was thinking to myself, like, 
how is the inference done? And it turns out that Duncan has, you know, a kind of pre-specified parameter set that in, in practice works really well and has nothing to do with our particular task at hand. Um, which still, so, so, so in some sense, we're not actually using any kind of built-in information from our data sets. We're just using kind of pre-cached parameters that Duncan has found to be empirically useful. Um, which in some sense is kind of also remarkable because, you know, it's still giving us good naive sequence inferences, despite the fact that we're not actually running training the HMM, you know, in Pardis itself. We're just using pre-cached parameters from a different and data so set. And if, so if this model is, is really good, then you could take a big clonal families, right, and feed to Pardis, like each sequence one by one, and in theory it should produce a single naive sequence for all of... Although, on the other hand, of course, uh, it was Pardis itself who clustered, right, these... Uh, Yes. Um, yes. The sequences into clonal families. Mm -hmm. So, but if if you could somehow sequence a single clonal family, then you could verify that Pardis gives a single naive. Yeah, I mean, so whole family. Yeah, so Pardis does a lot of things. So I think using the word Pardis doesn't really do it justice because it's like Pardis, you know, it does annotation, so it does do the naive sequence inference, but and then it evolved to do clustering as well. So clustering was kind of the next step. Um, and then it evolved to do even like germline gene inference and, you know, so, so kind of the, the nice sequence inference was like the first thing you could, you could feed it in a single sequence or multiple sequences and it will give you some sort of, you know, naive sequence. But, you know, the first step was to do the clustering, which was like, you know, just how we got our clonal families. But then once we subsample a sequence, you know, from these clonal families, it doesn't, you know, the sequence, the subsampled sequence doesn't really know anything about its members. And then we just, you know, run it through Pardis and we say, you know, we, we specify when we run Pardis, like we want to only annotate the sequence with a naive sequence, but no more clustering mm -hmm. like that, that, that functionality we did already. Okay. So I guess the two data sources are the naive sequence and input sequence, right? So what about the others? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, so, so kind of the public, I think the two, the two, the two input sources that are related to the public repertoire data, which I think is the most, right? The, the, is what we, I think we put a lot of emphasis on is the kind of the, what we call the V gene kind of substitution profiles and the V subgroup substitution profiles. Um, so kind of what we do is, you know, uh, Pardis is, you know, Pardis is, you know, well, clearly we're very, you know, we use a lot of Pardis information here, but Pardis also provides, um, inferred V, D, and J genes, uh, as output as well in its annotation. And uh, we use that information to, you know, to, to, to basically help us in our inference. So kind of what we do is we look, you know, we look in our, um, we, you know, we look in our input sequences and we ask Pardis, you know, uh, so you know, we ask Pardis, okay, can you tell me that my V, D and J gene? Um, right. And so, so then, so then Pardis in particular, you know, so the, Maybe Christian can talk about uh, – we use a lot of V-gene information, um, V-subgroup and V-gene, which is, you know, it, in case you're not aware of, you know, antibodies, you know, the V-gene spans most of the antibody sequence. I would say that, the, the, you know, it's it's a fairly conserved sequence, but 
uh, you know, most of the diversity of the of the antibody is like within the, the small CDR3 region that where the V, D, and J kind of have a little bit of influence all in. Um, but uh, kind of what we do is we look at the public repertoire data and we say, okay, let's why don't we try and create profiles in the public repertoire data that we've excluded from inference inference testing? Um, and why don't we just group kind of group profiles based on um, like their V gene and V subgroup label. Um, and, you know, in particular, uh, what is a V subgroup and V gene? Well, um, Christian, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a particular labeling scheme from IMGT uh, that kind of determines kind of the relationships between kind of V genes based on, I don't based on certain schemes that they've developed. And uh, the subgroup is a very generic, it's a very generic group. It's kind of a higher level group that contains lots of, um, lo- you know, it's, it's, you know, it's basically the first division of V genes. You know, you first look at the different subgroups. It could be V1, V2, V3. And that's kind of the first denomination of kind of V genes. And then you kind of go more, uh, in a more fine grained nature, you divide into V genes, which is kind of a, you know, it's a weird term to call it, uh, you know, V gene, but you know, it's like V. It would, you know, a V gene would be V one dash two or V one dash three. So that's a more fine grained label for the V gene. Um, and so, you know, what we do in our in our you know in our methods is that we actually cluster um, the the public repertoire data based on these labels, these inferred labels, um, as uh, to, to kind of act as a kind of different levels of clustered information, right? So like the V subgroup uh, cluster information provides us a very high level of profile of VDJ profile information. Whereas the V gene information might give us very, you know, more niche, more kind of detailed um, cluster, inf- you know, like profile information specific to each V gene. Um, and we thought, you know, both of them, you know, certain kind of serve different purposes, you know, one for high level, one for low level. Um, and we found they're both very useful um, in the inference. So if I understand correctly, um, in both cases with VGene and V subgroup gene, you take the um, uh, all the public data, right? And uh, it is already uh, grouped into clonal families, but then you cluster those clonal families themselves. You uh, join them, right? B- uh, based on the identity of a part of the sequence, whether that's the, so yes. V gene and V subgroup both refer to like specific parts of sequences. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, there's a particular part of the sequence that's the V gene and we can, we can kind of categorize these V genes based on certain labeling, uh, particular labeling schemes. Um, and the particular labeling scheme we use is from IMGT and they have a, they have a kind of, you know, a scheme that talks about subgroups and genes. Um, and so what we do is, like you said, we, we categorize these clonal families by the particular label, labeling schemes. And then we aggregate the profiles over those schemes, over those labels. Right. J- just to make sure. So when you say categorize yes. based, based on the scheme, um, so you are talking about categorizing not the, uh, the genes, like not the V1, V2, V3, but uh, like specific alleles of V1, V2, V3, right? It's a categorization scheme for the 
alleles or for the, for the sequences of the gene? Uh, you know, I do not know. Christian, do you know the answer to that? <laughs> yeah, maybe I should jump in. Uh, yeah, uh, it's you're correct. Uh, it's it's on like the alleles. It's I think it's the basic. Uh, uh, it's a basic notion about uh, that the um, immunoglobulin loci uh, are extremely variable. So um, a human will have somewhere between, I think, 40 and 30 uh, genes. And so those V genes will be spatially separated out. But uh, if you take gene number one, like going down the chromosome, then that can have different alleles. So my uh, V gene one allele might be different than your V gene one allele uh, just by a single substitution. And so another way, so, and then going even uh, like categorizing them even uh, uh, more coarse-grained, you could uh, you could make these subgroups, and so that's just a, a definition for so so that you can you can make a more like yeah, coarse grained uh, grouping of, of 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 the genes. So so going back to your question or your your comment, you're correct that the the V gene cluster is um, when when you refer to a V gene cluster, it's V gene one and and it's all the alleles of V gene one, and when we when we refer to V subgroup cluster, it's uh, the subgroup and all the genes contained in that subgroup and all the allele contained in all those genes. So it's like a hierarchical classification, and and everything which is under that hierarchy hierarchy is is defined and uh, in this labeling. So if I understand correctly, V clustering means so. Uh, we have this V1, V2, V3, which are like different uh, loci on the chromosome, right? Different parts of, of the gene. And uh, in in each clonal family, only one of those get, gets used, right? Yeah, by, by definition, you can only, like a clonal family is defined by a single naive sequence. So that naive sequence yeah. can, by definition, only have one V gene allele. Right, and so you cluster together all the clonal families that use V1, right? That's your one cluster. Then you cluster all that use V2. That's your second cluster, something like that. Yeah, so so going back to the definition of subgroups and, and, and genes, then let's say uh, V gene 1, that's the subgroup classification. And then V gene 1-1 is the gene classification. So then on the subgroup level, we cluster all the clonal families that are V gene that are classified as V gene one, and on the on the gene level clustering, uh, we cl- uh, we cluster all the clonal families that are using V gene one dash one, and so all the alleles that are in V gene one dash one. Okay, got it. But uh, despite the fact that you cluster based on on the uh you know, which V gene gets used, you still, like, within the cluster, you still infer the full profile, not just the profile for the V gene, right, but the profile for the whole B cell receptor sequence. Yes, correct. So, and and we can actually, it's it's very clear to see then, because it's that's a, that's a brilliant point, uh, 
and uh, and the way that I think you, you we can we can uh, we can see that this is uh, true is by looking at the contribution uh, because as you mentioned uh, it is like a, a regression model so our weighting schemes here like uh, like any old regression model then the weightings uh, the alphas here um, they they represent how much of, of a given input feature is getting used. And the VGene is covering from framework uh, one to the end of framework three. And that is exactly also where we have the most contribution of the VGene and the V subgroup clusters. Beyond framework three, there's pretty much no contribution from those two, which makes sense because the VGene is not defined in those regions. Interesting, yeah. And so... Um... We've covered so far four sources, right, that you use. So the naive sequence, the input sequence, the VGN cluster, V subgroup cluster, right? But uh, so there was the fifth one, which is the neutral substitution profile. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that comes from the fact that, that we know quite a lot about this substitution process. As, as I was explaining in the beginning, it's called somatic hybridization. And it's a, it's a fairly complicated process, but but long story short, it's it's a it's a process which is uh, enhanced. It's a mutation process which is which is enhanced by an enzyme called AID, and that enzyme goes in and then it deaminates um, cytosines, and uh, and it does that in a in a motif like in a biased way. So presumably, it binds better and, and deaminates better around certain sequent contexts and then other contexts. And also the re repair machinery that comes and repairs it afterwards is maybe also biased. We, we, it's, it's, it's not fully known how these biases are working out, but we, again, we, we can use summary statistics to infer what the, the substitution and, uh, what the mutation and substitution bias is on a, on a, on a neutral level. Uh, so we can do that with passenger alleles, and, and there's been much work going into that. And so the idea behind using or using a neutral substitution profile is simply to capture some of that information. And the way we can do that is simply by looking up in, in this motif-based mutation model, which is already pre, like that is inferred for humans uh, already. And, and then we can simply just simulate mutations uh, into, like, draw mutations and, and introduce them into the naive sequence and then simulate a neutral substitution profile as we would expect it to look when there's no selection. Right, right. And so the neutral substitution profile is based on the input sequence, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's based... It's not it's, general. It's based on, on the inferred naive, naive amino acid sequence. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, So so these five information sources right but you don't you don't make a distinction between different data sources right so it, you you may have data from like different experiments different repseq experiments uh, but they would share the weights as long as they fall into into the same clusters yeah uh, there's no discrimination between data sets that, that's true the only I mean, you, I think we, we pretty much rely on the fact that we make an external uh, validation in the end. 
uh, on the best of, of all the data sets that we have, which actually also turns out to be a single cell data set. <laughs> so it, it, it's also adding to the question before about like, uh, that we can't count transcripts as single cells, but we can actually do that with the validation data set that we're using. Yeah. And, and so then you have this, uh, model which, which combines data sources with this, uh, coefficients and the coefficients vary among sites and among uh, data so uh, sorry information sources right and then you apply regularization so can you talk about the regularization you apply yeah yeah, yeah i'll jump in here um yeah so um you know for yeah so i mean i mean uh, obviously we could we we could take our weighted average model at each site you know, compare it, you know, compare the predict this kind of weighted average predicted amino acid substitution profile, compare that to the real one from the real clonal family, right? And then maybe compute some error and then minimize that error, right? That's kind of the classical way of doing, uh, you know, statistical inference, right? Um, and you could do that, right? Like no, no one's stopping, stopped us from doing that. But I think there's um, there's a lot of noise, right? Like you could imagine like, you know, little perturbations in the data set might change weights here and there. And so you don't really get a very interpretable signal, um, you know, from from uh, from fitting just a model with, you know, tons of parameters. Right. So in our case, you have 149 positions. And let's say we used, you know, four four data unique external data sources. So that's 149 times four. Um, which is, I believe is 596 unique parameters that we're estimating, um, which is a lot. Um, so when you're, when you're doing the, you know, the, the inference, it's like, you, you know, we want to be able to understand what, what these weights mean, you know, like we want to understand, like, how do these weights, you know, which sources provide the most information? How do they relate from site to site? Um, and it's, it's a bit difficult, you know, whenever, you, you know, because it's so specific to one data set. And you want you want to be able to generalize your weights to new data sets. I mean, regularization, regularization is a great way to do that, right? Like it, you know, instead of having a very jaggedy likelihood surface, you know, regularization kind of adds some smoothness into the into the in not a like in this case it's not a likelihood surface, but in this case it's just a, you know kind of an error surface, right? Um, and uh, you know, and the smoothness acts as a kind of a, as a way to make sure that you're not overfitting to a particular per, you know, specific, you know, specific nature, specific kind of thing to your, of your data set, right? Like presumably, you know, you, you don't want to condition on the fact that your data set is the only data set you ever see, right? You want to be able to look at other data sets and have them be, you know, variable, variable nature of other data sets, um, you know, have your model react to that, right? So, you know, regularization is a common way of doing that. Um, and so in particular, um, the re regular, the regularization that we do, that we do, uh, use in our kind of spurf model, um, has, is kind of commonly has been discussed in kind of, uh, machine learning quite a bit. And it has to do with lasso penalties. Um, and kind of what a lasso penalty is, is, well, basically, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because it, it will, sh um, it will shoot kind of, parameter estimates or parameter weights to zero if they're uninformative, um, which, which is kind of, it's, which is kind of, 
useful for interpretation because you know immediately that you know that that something is not important if it's at zero right versus other maybe regularization schemes which may kind of slowly converge to zero um and eventually will reach zero but not like kind of hitting zero um uh, at a much uh kind of much faster um and so that's kind of what we do in in our model and so you know so so yeah does that uh do you want me to talk specifically about kind of the different uh the, we, the two lasso penalties we use yeah so i'm trying to understand uh you, you say there are a lot of parameters and sure there are because there are many sites right but at each specific site there are just four or five parameters so mm-hmm. and, and and they uh sum up to one mm-hmm. so you can't reduce that too much right uh like m- maybe you can drive like maybe i don't know one or two to zero well yeah so i mean we 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 i mean we put penalties in all the parameters um you know but we all you know we of course have to enforce the fact that they all sum to one but you know you i mean you'd i mean in, in the case of i mean there are there were a lot of positions that i think in our plots that where you know a lot of the co- you know coefficients were at zero, um, yeah. I mean, and kind of so yeah. So we 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 put a lasso. We put a kind of a regular uh, lasso coefficient for all four at each site. You know, for all four of the information sources um, to prov- you know to allow them to adjust to the data um, as need be. Um, so so the sparse model, the result of your lasso regularization, would look like at each side out of four parameters mm-hmm. one or two will be mm-hmm. zero is that yeah i mean that's sort of that's it? the hope right like if truly that one or two um parameter one only two you know, let's say two, you know two information sources are relevant and the other two are just non-informative then the the, the hope is that the, you know the, the the lasso will push the those uninformative coefficients to zero um but also the hope is that there is no information source that is irrelevant everywhere. So sort of a different sides, the different set of sources are relevant. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, right. But you would hope that there's no information source that's uniformly uninformative across, you know, all the AHO positions, um, which luckily was not the case. Um, you know, <laughs> like, you know, because for, for uh, you could imagine that, you know, as I said before, the V-gene spans, I don't know, uh, 70% of the antibody sequence. I don't know. Christian can correct me. Uh, sounds legal, right? And so you, you could imagine the V-gene and V-sub group profiles being really informative uh, for, you know, like a lot, 70% of the AHO positions because it spans that V-gene, right? But right after that V-gene, it not being important, Um so, and then, you know, the other, the other two kind of information sources, the naive sequence and the neutral profiles, um, well, th- you know, th- those are kind of more, kind of more specific to the, v- you know, the entire, you know, sequence, right? So you can imagine those sequences being more informative at the spots where the V gene kind of ceases to exist. Um, so ca- ca- kind of intuitively, you would, uh, we, we did expect that there, there were going to be different areas where we thought that the information sources had higher weights and we didn't, ex- we didn't expect, you know, that any of them were going to be uni- uniformly, you know, zero have weights of zero kind of across the alignment, the alignment. 
Yeah, that that makes sense. So, and and did you choose the uh, sort of the weight of the regularization by cross validation? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit of a it was a bit of involved process. So, I mean, I, I I kind of left out kind of if you want me to, you know, so we can we can go into detail, but um, kind of what we did. So, you know, I I've been very specific about oh, we used four information sources, right? But in reality, we had I think a couple we had a couple more. We had we also used k-means clustering, uh, and uh, based on a couple. So you know, instead of using those v subgroup and v gene based clusters, how we you know how I was segment. I said I segment and we segmented those, uh, you know, these substitution profiles based on v subgroup and v gene labels. We also used k-means clustering to segment these sub- public repertoire substitution profiles based on the naive sequence. And based on just the profiles themselves, um, and those are two other sources that we we wanted to investigate as we came to a um, we wanted to figure out what we wanted to put in the model, um, and so and so what we did to be to to kind of test what features we wanted to add into the model was we came up with a forward stepwise selection procedure, um, and. You know, the reason for it was because we certainly didn't want to do all subsets regression where we tested every possible combination of data sources in the model as it would just would have wasted a little too much time. And um, but we also wanted kind of a, you know, an acceptable and kind of like something that would provide a, a good accuracy and also good uh, efficiency tradeoffs. Um, so we came up with this stepwise selection procedure, which kind of worked as follows, like, you know, we, we would try a model, we, we would fit a model. So we would start with the null model where there's nothing in it, the model. It's kind of a, you know, a set of zero, right? An empty set. And then we would throw in an information source. We would check all the, the, you know, the first level, you know, we would throw in the first, you know, the first profile in and we would check over all the pro, the external profiles and measure the performance of all of them. And the best one, the best, pr- external profile, let's say it was the naive sequence profile, that would be, you know, then we would say, okay, great, um, continue on with that profile. So then we'd go to the next step and we would fit a model where we had the naive sequence profile and then we would look over all the possible profiles that were left in the set, um, excluding the naive sequence profile. And we would try those kind of models. Those These are second level models. And we kept doing that until, you can keep doing that until you reach kind of a a maximum threshold that you feel comfortable with. Um, we chose five, um, and you know, and we ended up just uh, doing really good with four. Um, and that's how we got to, you know, the four kind of the, the four external information sources that I, uh, I was describing before. Um, and in particular, how we're estimating error is we are doing five-fold cross-validation within each step of the stepwise selection process. Can you also just mention how we fit the regularization parameters, like the lambdas? Oh yes, but but so so but importantly, this is first, right? Yeah. Uh, that we, I mean, it's it's a bit complicated. We we first have to determine what, like, certainly we can't do regularize until we know what we what discrete. So you could imagine like our kind of model selection process as optimizing over discrete parameters where the discrete parameters is whether to include these information sources in and the continuous parameters associated with regularization. Right. Um, 
and these are all tuning parameters uh, that we need to like figure out, right? So kind of the first step was, you know, we wanted to do forward stepwise selection to get to to deal with the dis discrete parameters, which was tuning, which was do I include a information source or not? Um, and once we determined the best kind of choice of information sources, we then ran, you know, we we then did kind of the regularized model fitting, which was okay. Now conditioning on those information sources. Now let's do kind of cross validation to determine the tuning, you know, the the tuning parameters from the regularized model. Um, and and then we did that, and we did cross validation. We got you know estimates. And then once we did that, we fit the entire, you know, we fit the penalized model using the optimal tuning parameters. And then we got our parameter estimates of, you know, of our alpha weights. And then once you have the alpha weights, you can, you know, you can then predict on any, uh, you can predict on basically any data set you want. So it's a bit of a kind of very, it's a very complicated and like involved process uh, because of all the different kind of tuning parameters that exist in our model. Right. So if I download uh, the Spurf software will it already contain this fitted alpha values. Yes, it will. Yeah, it's yeah, cool. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's 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 it. I believe we. I don't know if we actually. I know that I know the prediction. The tool will definitely. You can definitely. You use the 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 alpha values that we provided. I don't know necessarily if it's actually in there. It probably is in the repository. It is. Um, yeah, it sure is. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, I must have uploaded it a while ago. <laughs> no, it, it it's there and it's in the it's all in the Docker image, so it can easily we you can easily try it out just uh, by downloading uh, the the Docker image and and and, and try it on a you know, you know your favorite favorite sequence. <laughs> right, and and the cool thing is, if I understand correctly, right, although you have to analyze this presumably huge amount of data because you have all this. Uh, sequencing data but in order to run the model you just need this uh four profiles right so they're tiny data yeah well you don't even yeah you only need to have the parameters which are not very i mean that's just a, a matrix so that's nothing uh and then you need a bit of uh so you need the profiles the the input profiles and Few well, it's only two of them that are based on the public data set. Yeah, so all, all the the original public data sets are huge, but the the profiles are tiny, right? Yeah, it's condensed into a, a megabyte or something like that. And yeah, in particular, like our Spurf tool does that kind of uh, profile generation uh, while it's while it does the prediction. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, oh, I mean like in the sense that like it'll you know it'll determine uh, you know we have these clusters kind of cached. Um, sitting there and like when you input a sequence it determines you know it first runs Pardis gets an eye sequence um and then it determines the v gene d, you know d gene j gene and then you use those um the v gene to determine uh what subgroup cluster belongs to what v gene cluster belongs to it simulates a neutral substitution profile um all yeah. right that's that's what i mean it, it kind of the spurf tool kind of does all that um behind the scenes cool Cool. And uh, can you talk just very briefly about how you actually implemented this? So, so this is an optimization problem, right? Hopefully, a convex one. <laughs> yeah. But how, how do you actually go about? Uh, so, like, do do you code everything by hand, or do you use some kind of framework? Yeah, I mean, so um, 
Yeah. So in particular, um, I, I think, I, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, me and Christian, like Christian, you know, I think the people in the Matson group really love Python. And I think a lot of the uh, data processing tools have been written in Python. So a lot of the data um, processing when it came to preparing data and doing the AHO annotation was all in Python. Um, and in terms of the model fitting itself, um, I was, I'm an R guy. So when I was doing a lot of this model fitting stuff, I would, I would write, I would, I used a linear algebra library in C++ and then which, which was good for, um, because it used some template meta programming. So I, I, I didn't have to worry about kind of like long expressions being kind of wasted at runtime. Um, and so I would use this kind of like templated C++ code and just write out whatever kind of like, uh, you know, uh, objective functions that I needed to use. And then, and then I would, I, we use kind of a generic optimizer, um, to fit these functions. I mean, so as you, as you were alluding to, yes, um, our problem is convex because the lasso penalty is a convex function, um, with respect to it, the parameter it's optimizing, right? Yeah. Lasso, sure. But what, what about the, uh, the error itself, the, the objective? Oh yeah. I mean, so yeah. So. On, on the one, so we didn't actually really talk about that, but we, we actually used two different error objectives. Um, the, the first error objective was, um, the kind of the standard you would use in linear regression, right? It's the L2 error. Um, we would just take kind of an L2 norm, um, a squared L2 norm of these profiles. And yeah. And, and, and so as you can imagine, that is convex because, you know, it's, you know, it's a linear combination of, you know, of these terms and you're, it's an L2 norm. Right. Um, and yeah, but, but also you have this constraint that it sums up to one, but I guess that's also fine because it's linear. Yes, exactly. It's a, so, so in particular, we, you know, these all need to be let, you know, satisfy inequality constraints. So yeah. So the equal, the, the equality constraint fits and the, you know, being less than or equal to one and greater than or equal to zero also fits in kind of a convex optimization framework. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And so in that case, you know, one may ask, you know, especially in the statistical community, um, you know, d- you know, uh, did you, you know, could you come up with a kind of a specific solver just for this problem? Um, you know, and I think in our case, it's like, it just didn't really matter. You know, we, you know, of course the first level, you know, to try is always, can you use something generic and does it work good enough? Right. Like why waste time trying to engineer like a very unique optimization solver if generic solvers will work? And it turns out um, we used a generic optimization solver even for a convex optimization problem, and it worked really well, which was great. We were concerned about you know getting good results, not whether our optimization procedure was unique or something, because that was the real sure. <laughs> you know. You know, there's a lot of people who focus on that stuff and that's great. Um, but you know, we were really concerned about, you know, these, the getting this, you know, getting good predictions and whether we, if we, if we could converge, we knew that at least for the L2 error that we were going to have a unique solution because of the convexity. So we didn't really matter. We tried different restarts and if it was converging the same solution, we're pretty convinced that, you know, that the generic optimizer would be just fine. Yeah. And, and so the, that's presumably based on on some kind of gradient met method, right? And, yes, exactly. Uh, 
do you use the approximate gradient based on finite differences or because yep. mm-hmm. some some frameworks can do this sort of automatic differentiation where they can uh... no yeah we're doing none of that we're yeah we're doing numerical gradients um in particular we were using uh the lb the comp the very classical lbfgs um so it's uh bfgs is that kind of this kind of it tried to approximate newton's method by kind of doing newton steps but instead of using the actual hessian it uses kind of an approximate hessian based off of like first order differences and and it, you know it works you know like it you could actually supply a derivative function but if you don't supply a derivative function it'll just compute first order differences numerically yeah. and then it'll use those numerical first order differences to numerically estimate hessians um and yeah, and so that kind of that's kind of how it works. It's kind of a Newton's method, but a pro, it's kind of a quasi. It's a in the family of quasi Newton optimization methods. Um, yeah, and and it, what's great about it, at least from our perspective, was that it also incorporates bound constraints, um, which we needed because the alpha parameters had to be constrained between zero and one. Ah, oh, that that makes sense. Yeah, um, and so you you mentioned the. Uh... Two objective functions. So one we discussed the L two metric. Uh, can you briefly talk about the other one? Yeah, um, yeah. So the other, you know, as a statistician, you know, I was pretty just content with L two because you know that's what I'm used to. Um, but I think as kind of a from a scientific point of view, I think there was some interest in understanding like, well, okay, so we so L two is measuring like how good do the these frequencies match up, right? Do these frequencies match up in an L two norm sense? Um, but yep. you know, like if, if some of the, if some of the, you know, like m- maybe, you know, so scientists would only ask like for people who might use this tool, they might really be asking like, okay, so maybe what about the, the amino acid bases that, you know, are greater than 20% or like, you know, are observed more than 20%. Those are probably the only bases that I'll actually be looking at because if I want to mutate up, like when I'm doing engineering, I may only want to mutate, you know, to amino acids that are greater than 20%, right? Um, so, you know, the question is, am I really, can I, can I predict high, um, h- highly frequent amino acids, um, versus just kind of like the, the, you know, kind of the less frequent amino acids that they may not care about. So in this case, instead of comparing the entire kind of profile vector, we compared sets. Um, so basically, we had a set, we, let's say I was interested in the, the amino acid frequencies that were above 20, 20%, right? And, and I would, let's say, you know, and I would do, I would compute a predicted set and I would look at the actual set, right? So I'd have these sets that were co- consisted of the amino acids that were observed or predicted more than 20% of the time. Um, and then I would compare them for their similarity. I would say, well, how close are the sets? Because, you know, a scientist really wants to know, like, you know, for these, I want I want to know what bases I can mutate to, and are you good at determining those bases um, that are highly frequent? And you know, there there's a similarity metric um, that determines similarity based on sets called the Jacquard similarity metric. Um, and just very simply, it's not it's not even it's it's very simple metric. It's basically it's defined as the um, the ratio of the intersection of two sets um, over the union of two sets. So, so, so it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's, it's the ratio of the intersection to the union. So, um, it's, it's a very intuitive metric. Um, 
So if the two sets are the same, there's a hundred percent similarity, which is great. Um, if the intersection is, there's no intersection, that means that the similarity is zero, which also makes sense. Um, so it, it's a kind of intuitive metric and, uh, there's, there is mathematical precedence for using this metric when you want to compare sets. Um, so in our, so we found that to be kind of an interesting, kind of, kind of a good use case for the kind of a, a, a different metric to optimize over that may be of interest to scientists. Yeah. And did you find that the uh, inferred parameters differ too much between those two metrics? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think the, the inferred parameters, um, they, they do differ because of kind of, kind of what they're optimizing over. So, you know, you could imagine like tweaking, you know, some of the, the weights, which imagine the weights are like knobs, right? And you're tweaking these knobs and like, you could imagine, you know, okay, I, ch I changed these weights a little bit. But if the sets, it's very, it's very easy to change these weights and have the sets remain the same, right? Um, because the, you know, the weights are continuous parameters, but these sets are based off of like these thresholds, like am I greater than 20%, right? So it's very easy to get into a situation where, you know, you're, you, there's kind of a flatness where you're changing parameters in the space of parameters, right? Um, but you're kind of still achieving the same sets. And so thus you're still achieving the same error. Right. And, and that's presumably when the, uh, regularization kicks in. Yeah. I mean, to resolve those ties. Yeah. But I think like even more, like the regularization does help, but it's almost as if it's too, like, because of this discrete nature of the jacquard, um, it's almost too smooth. I think the fact is like, you can't, you know, you move around in parameter space and it's so flat because little changes, I think LBFGS doesn't do you know, large scale changes every iteration. It does, you know, kind of gradual. So what, what's happening is that, you know, we found that our great, because LBFGS is gradient based, we were finding yeah, that. Come to think of it, th this uh, metric is not even continuous, let alone different. Exactly. Here. Right. Um, and we're using, you know, gradient based optimization. Um, and so what was happening was our experiments were converging within two seconds. Um, because of the derivative being zero. <laughs> Um, which was, which yeah. is not shocking <laughs> because the metric is discrete in nature, right? Um, so what we actually did was we, we applied a smooth approximation of the Jacquard metric to kind of help with the optimization. Um, so we, we kind of looked at Jacquard as, uh, we, we decomposed the Jacquard metric. Um, it's, it's in the appendix or paper, but we, we, we wrote out the Jacquard metric in a particular mathematical form and, it turns out that that mathematical form uh, can be written is the limit of some, a particular function. Uh, and it turns out, so what, what we did was we basically took uh, this limiting function and we used that as our optic, kind of our optimization um, function instead, uh, just to help us be a little less discrete in the kind of in the, you know, kind of what I call like a step function. We may try to make it a little less of a step function kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, and so, so that did help with optimization and yeah, I mean, the parameter estimates going back to your original question. I mean, the parameter estimates did differ. Um, I think most importantly, you know, the, I think the parameter estimates, like, I think, you know, when we, when we predict on Jacquard or fit on Jacquard, I think more importantly, we're focused on the predictions based on Jacquard. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, I think when you're trying to understand 
let's say you want to understand the profiles, right? And how they, you know, how they vary across the, across the AHO positions. Um, then using L2 probably makes more sense because you're, you're interested in the entire composition of, of the amino acids, right? But if you're only con- concerned in, in kind of the high frequency basis as a, an, let's say antibody engineer, then using Jacquard is maybe more appropriate. Well, that's, uh, a lot of information to process for our listeners. Um, b- before we end, uh, do, you, do you have anything else you'd like to mention to, to plug? I don't have anything about the paper, but... Just in general, whatever you want our listeners to know. Well, I appreciate that you make this podcast. It's, uh, it's been fun to, to participate. Yeah, and, and just, you know, in case people are interested, we do have a GitHub page um, for the... the this, we have a command line tool that can predict, you know, these um, amino acid profiles, uh, substitution profiles based on a single input sequence. And it's on our, it's on a, it's on it. We have, we provide the link on a, in a GitHub link. Uh, I, uh, so if, you know, if you're interested in that, you should definitely take a look. Yeah. I'll, I'll put those links in, in the show notes for the episode. So the listeners can find them there. Cool guys. Well, thanks a lot for your time. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's a great. It was a great uh, chance to uh, yeah to discuss this. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for setting up. 